Welcome to the Pat Asher Radio Show, coming at you from Moray Bay Studios, where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. My guest today is John Pico. John is a financial advisor at Edward Jones, but I haven't brought him on to give us stock tips, though maybe I'll ask for some of those later. But I heard, as tends to happen down here in the Keys, uh, and John is in studio with me right now, about a life before that that may have involved a higher level of danger, at least physical danger. But before we get to that, John, welcome to Moray Bay Studios. Matt, thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you down here and in studio. Always nice to be able to talk to people in person, just to let you know. I normally have conversations more planned out, but we're just going to wing this and begin with a question I like asking everyone who ends up at the very edge of the United States in what's sometimes known as the Conk Republic. How did you get here? How did I get here? So... We've lived in Key West for about five years, and, and we is my wife and two kids, 11 and 13-year-old. Uh, I was stationed at a, uh, an organization here in Key West for the last, uh, let's say, four years, and um, finished my 28-year naval career here in, in the Keys. And so we decided after that to, uh, to just grow roots down right in, in Key West. And uh, that's that's why we're here. So you liked it enough to want to stay? It is what people say. It's truly a paradise. The The waters are gorgeous. The snorkeling's amazing. The people are incredible. And uh, we just wanted a part of that. Well, I think that the the Tourism Commission has paid you well. That's very good. That's right. <laughs> so so you were down here with the, the military. What were you doing for them? So although my background is flying uh, as a pilot, my uh, job here for four years was at at an agency called the Joint Interagency Task Force South, otherwise known as JIATF South, down at the end of uh, the back end of the Keys, Key West. And uh, that particular mission is essentially the United States' counter-drug uh, heart. And we, we work essentially to protect the borders of the United States and our partners and allies from the, uh, the scourge of, of drug, drug trafficking. So you're going around picking up uh, square groupers, and maybe you could give a definition of that term for people who uh, who don't know. Right. Well, a square grouper is a, uh, I guess, a wrapped large cube of uh, marijuana, and that sometimes rolls up along the shore. But no, we're we're going for much bigger fish that are, let's say, transporting illegally uh, tons and tons of what would be considered square grouper, cocaine, other illicit uh, narcotics. Uh, and all types of, uh, I guess, illegal activity that that goes in line with that and causes corruption and destabilizes governments. That's what we're focused on, working with our closely with our partners, international partners, and law enforcement partners, and that's happening here in Key West. And then before that, you worked for. So before the Keys, right before that, uh, we had spent two years in Colombia, South America, uh, living in Bogota. I was a uh, military diplomat. I was a naval attache. Uh, so my job there was to work very closely with the Colombian Navy and uh, and essentially strengthen that partnership between the U.S. Navy and the Colombian Navy. 
I was also flying uh, as one of the embassy pilots as well. So had a few very fun, interesting missions, flying the ambassador around, the minister of defense, into you know small dirt strips uh, that most would normally not go, but uh, the U.S. Navy has no problem going in there. It's very interesting down there. I n- never made it to Colombia, though I did travel around South America when I was living down there. It uh, it has been an extraordinarily dangerous place, Colombia, infamously, though my understanding is that it has become less dangerous in more recent years. How was it when you were in and out of there? It has uh, historically been quite dangerous, but it has unfortunately maintained that reputation of being very dangerous when now it's uh, far less than what we remember in the past with the Pablo Escobar days. Uh, it's an amazing country. It has pockets of insecurity, but the vast majority uh, of the of the country is just amazing. Um, tourism, uh, coffee plantations, most of the flowers that we hand out on Valentine's Day come from Colombia or, or the surrounding areas, uh, chocolate, yeah, just amazing, amazing country. The people are amazing. And there are pockets, however, of insecurity. And those were the areas uh, being military that we were helping the Colombian government focus on to try and get under control. Are you able to talk about some of the missions that you uh, ran down there? In in general, um, most of the ones where I was flying, it would be to take um, either Colombian military or U.S. government to see sites where there's already interaction happening, to uh, take care of the indigenous population, to um, you know maybe the Colombian Navy's building a new ship and we're helping them out with that. Uh, it, it's sort of that type of thing. It's just really fostering the partnership, fostering the relationship. There were a couple airfields that we've landed on that were dirt strips. Uh, most, most pilots, uh, including myself, have normally only landed on hard surfaces to include aircraft carriers, never dirt. And so this was a a unique experience, but we would have to do some low flybys over the field prior to landing. uh, Because normally when you have a dirt runway in the middle of the jungle, that's where animals hang out. That's where soldiers build their tents. That's where people hang out, where there's cleared space. And so we'd have to do a couple low flybys. The soldiers would see us there. They'd take their tents down, the animals would scurry off into the woods, and then we'd ultimately land there. So it was it was different than the normal landing experience that I've, I've been used to prior. So basically clearing everything out, and then is that uh, been a stressful kind of landing? How, how fast are you coming in when you're landing, and what kind of plane would you be landing there? This particular plane that I was flying with the embassy is, uh, is it was a Beechcraft 200 twin-engine, six-passenger type plane. Based on what I flew in the Navy, which was the F-18 Hornet and Super Hornet, this plane was painfully slow. So no, the landing and the flying uh, was very different. And um, and the speeds were much, much slower, which was great. I was able to, you know, maintain situational awareness far easier than, than coming in, you know, screaming hot. But, uh, you know, we're landing at 100, and, 100 to 120 miles an hour or so initially. Something like that. Yeah. I... Don't know if the listeners know, but uh, cocaine, of course, doesn't start out as cocaine. It starts out as coca leaves. There is an active 
uh, community and debate in South America about the coca leaves themselves in Bolivia, where I was. People chew the coca leaves. I did as well occasionally when I was down there, and actually more than that, I really enjoyed the tea that you can make from coca leaf. It's also, as well as a mild stimulant, it is also really good for altitude sickness, and a lot of the time up uh, spent there was spent uh, up at altitude. Uh, the city itself where I was was about 8,000 uh, feet above uh, sea level. And then, of course, some of that uh, coca leaf ends up headed north to Colombia, but not all of it. A lot of it is consumed locally. The uh, Bolivia itself not while I was there, this is maybe 20 years ago, was in the process of legalizing a cota, a small amount that a, a farmer could have of of coca leaf without being uh, molested. I don't know if they, they grow uh, the coca leaf directly in Colombia now or not. Do you know? They do. They grow a ton of it. Uh, it's not for the consumption in in most cases that you're describing, although that, that is certainly a use for it uh, historically. Um, but it's now been more commercialized for the eventual cocaine product, which is quite extraordinary the way it's made. They, they have uh, labs that the Colombians train, train at uh, that have coca leaves, coca, the plants themselves. And there are many varieties of them. I mean, there's something over 30 different types. And if you were to walk by a coca plant, uh, in, if someone planted it in front of your, your, your house here, it would be a gorgeous plant with flowers and colors and everything. You, you would not even know it. Um, and there's so many different types and, uh, some are very hardy against, um, some of the spraying that, that was done in the past. They can survive that some, you know, most cannot. And, and they've, uh, so it's very difficult for law enforcement to identify these 30 some different variants and then how to stop it. Cause it grows very quickly as well. So they have some of these facilities where the law enforcement can train. What are these coca plants? What do they look like? And then they walk through the entire process. And it's something like 14 separate chemical steps to go from the plant all the way to the finished product. Uh, it is a, it is a true chemistry, you know, experiment. So the fact that these guys are doing this in the jungle, uh, to the level that they're doing it is is actually quite extraordinary but they've they've cracked the code they have the procedures down and and that's the challenge I am talking with John Pico, and we are discussing a variety of things from his life he is a, a fellow Key Wester Keys person here tell me a little bit more about how you got into flying planes so I guess I have to go way back uh, as a teenager, I'm, out, I'm sitting in high school as a freshman at an all boys, uh, all boys Catholic high school, freshman year, have a date with this uh, cute gal from another school. I have concerns that she's going to uh, elevate the, uh, this date quickly into perhaps would, would be a kiss, which at, at age 14, I was unaware of what to really do. And I, I uh, consult one of my freshman buddies who seemed to be far more experienced. And he said, uh, you, there's this movie that came out very recently called Top Gun. You need to go watch that and you'll see the scene where it goes uh, kind of blue lights and that'll clarify how you prepared you need to be. I'm like, okay. So I, I go to, I think it was Blockbuster, rent the movie, watch it. And uh, my thought was just to fast forward to the blue scene but instead, I watched the whole thing, and I watched it, I think, seven times. 
And uh, the date didn't really pan out all that well, but it was at that moment where I realized there's some amazingly cool and challenging uh, things out there that I was unaware of. And one of those was flying jets for the US Navy. And that's what started. So that was your, your seat of inspiration, but then how do you go from there to actually being a, a pilot? And I think you were a trainer as well, right? That's right. So my father was in the Navy. My grandfather was in the Navy. My sister was in the Navy. It was in the blood as well. So it didn't take too much to kind of push me off the, uh, the nest. Uh, but my father and grandfather were both in the engineering side of the Navy, um, building things, uh, following the Marines at a beach when they would storm a beach they would come in right behind and build hospitals and, and, and landing areas. And I just didn't really find that too interesting. They were moving a lot of dirt with bulldozers, but I felt I could move a lot more dirt uh, with a bomb, you know, although I'd make a bigger mess. So the training really began after finishing college. I went to Villanova University just outside Philly and uh, started flight school uh, where everyone in the Navy starts, and that's in Pensacola, Florida and the birthplace of naval aviation. You start with uh, mostly academics uh, and, and physical training, and then they start kind of branching you out based on your performance and your attitude and, and a lot of other factors. Some will go jets, some will go helicopters, some will go propeller planes, and, and some won't make it. And they just keep you know, refining through training and evaluation further and further along until ultimately they end up with a, in my case, a small group that makes it all the way into uh, fixed wing um, fighter pilot training. You get uh, a host of different experiences with different aircraft. And uh, are there any that you prefer flying? You mentioned earlier that you, you know, that the Beechcrafts were painfully slow. Uh, I suppose then you enjoy the uh, the much faster planes. I enjoy, they, they all have their Pros and cons, I guess, and I, I do enjoy the, the the faster aircraft, you know, the faster boats, the faster cars. It's just maybe in my adrenaline. Um, but the training airplanes leading up to the eventual F-18 Hornet or Super Hornet that we currently fly, um, those were amazing as well. I mean, I was a new pilot, so I had a lot to learn. Um, some of the training that is is part of that is uh, is pretty intense. For example, we have this dunker, helicopter dunker training that everyone has to go through every four years. And what they do is they put up to eight aircrew in this round cylinder uh, elevated over a pool, a deep end of a pool, and you sit in your respective seats and the, you have all your gear on and then they'll release the cylinder into the water and it'll spin one way or the other. And as it's spinning, it's submerging and it will submerge all the way down into the bottom of the deep end until it hits, essentially hits the bottom of the deep end. You're still in your seatbelt. And that's- Is the, is the water pouring in? Is this an water's open completely cylinder? pouring in. Yeah, no, it's, okay. it's all vented. So everything, all the water's coming in. And it's to simulate that you've been in a helicopter and the helicopter has now crashed in the ocean and, and what to do and how to get out safely. And you do that um, without, you know, without any goggles or mask or anything, just doing that looking underwater and uh, release the seatbelt. And if you release it too early, they have scuba divers there. They'll note that that particular uh, participant bailed out too early and you got to do it again. So the first two times, eyes open, no problem. And then the next two times, they do it with these blackout goggles and you're, you're basically completely blinded. And you have to find the, the hatch 
to to swim out of and it's those types of trainings where you're 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 just it's intense and uh people are kicking people are clawing to get out of there i mean you're upside down 12 feet under blacked out goggles you know it gets a little it gets a little intense and that was one of them that stands out as some super fun training i had uh, yeah super fun being uh, maybe not <laughs> the word that would come to my mind thinking about that did you have moments in there where you thought oh man i i'm not getting out of here on time there was there was one i mean we had to do this every 4 years and there was one there there's eight seats and there's one seat in particular seat number 8 that is the one you don't want and you'll do it four separate times and you just pray that that fourth the fourth time uh, the fourth run where your goggles on the black goggles on you're not in seat 8 and this particular time despite all my prayers it was goggles on seat 8 and you are basically three seats away and across the aisle from the one door that's open. And so as this flips, um, you can't see anything. You have your hands, one hand above your head and one hand by your chin to see which way the water is gonna come first because you're you're rolling upside down as you're sinking. You know, you feel, the, I felt the water right above my head coming. I take one last breath. I uh, the, the rotation stops, I disconnect. I feel myself three seats over. I reach across, find the other seat across the aisle. I grab what I thought was a door. We have a helmet on. Grab what I thought was a door and pull myself out. And I and my head slammed right into the wall. And so at that point, I have absolutely no idea where the door is. And so at that point, I figured, okay, this is it. You know, I hope the scuba divers can pull me out. But I felt the uh, the leg the leg of something right there next to me brushed my shoulder, and I grabbed whatever it was, and I yanked, and I, I ended up pulling myself through that door. Popped up. And then I, of course, listened to someone who was screaming and crying about someone that tried to keep him underneath in the helicopter for a little extra long. I didn't admit that that was me, but that that was me that you know grabbed that that life lifeline of a foot, got me out of there, and and pulled you out. Yeah, brought you up, and then I imagine there are people who end up passing out during the the escape. There, <laughs> they give us the the safety brief. You know, you can raise both hands, and they'll come out and pull you out. And if they have to resuscitate you, it's not designed. For, to do any harm. It's only designed to make sure you're more prepared if it were to happen in real life. Mm -hmm. And to keep your wits about you in, in those kinds of stressful moments. I'd imagine that a lot of the training you have and a lot of the preparedness is about just that, about keeping your wits about you when things go sideways. It is, uh, it is about that. It's about maintaining calm in the in in an environment that would be considered extraordinarily stressful and that's you know we we train on on the ground we train in the air and we throw as as many stressful challenging situations at you so when you do it for real uh in combat ideally it's less stressful than even the training was and that's that's the intent it doesn't start out that stressful but it builds very quickly into um into those types of scenarios. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about any of those particular scenarios that you've been into, but we have to take a break right now, and I will be right back with John Pico. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM, otherwise known as the Filter Podcast. I am talking with John Pico, who is right now a financial advisor, but has had a variety of different lives. We're talking right now about his life as a pilot, and we were talking about some 
training and now I want to get to your action outside of training, what kind of, have you been in any really difficult circumstances uh, beyond the one where you were trying to escape from drowning in a cylinder going down underwater? <laughs> there, knowing my my wife and mom are listening, I have to keep it, I don't want to talk about too many of the scary stories. No, So there have been a bunch. Um, you're in the middle of it and you your colleagues are doing the exact same thing you are and you're training and working as as if your life depends on it and in reality it does and so when you're in the middle of that it doesn't even feel like uh an experience that's extraordinary extraordinarily dangerous or or you know incredible or memorable it's it's just your day-to-day -day job and it's only after the fact where you kind of sit back either that night or you know with with your squadron back on the shore where you kind of reflect on what you just, what you just did. And, um, but there were a bunch of, we, you know, we've, I've been, uh, I've had over 80 combat missions flying and, and some of those were, were, were dicey, I guess you can say, again, we've trained for this, but training, you can only train to a certain limit. And once they start shooting real things at you, uh, the size of telephone poles in, in some cases that are coming at you very quickly, Things get very serious. So we're what, what is what gets fired at you? That's the size of a telephone pole. So in in uh, this was in Iraq, uh, flying in in Operation Southern Watch and a number of other missions there. There were times where the they were trying to shoot us down uh, from protecting you know helping their innocent civilians and and so uh, you never. You never knew what was coming. You just always had to be aware. You're always looking left, looking right. You're checking your wingman's uh, six o'clock, as we say, because it's very difficult to look right behind you. So you would always check the six o'clock of your of your wingman, and he's he or she's checking yours. And then out of the blue, something launches from the ground. Maybe your alerts in your own airplane go off uh, if it picks up some cues. Uh, but here it comes, and it's moving at you know Mach two, three, four up to Mach six. You have seconds. Uh, to react, and that that'll get the blood that'll get the blood pumping. I can tell you that right now. Um, it's it's one of those times where you do you, you know you're you're thankful your training was very intense because once you survive that, now it's to figure out where it came from and to ensure it doesn't happen again. So it's kind of one of those hey it's it's a bad day for you because you missed because now we're coming after you and that's that's normally how that would work. So that moment happens where they miss and now you are headed after them you're i imagine just completely locked in how do you keep your emotions in check as far as going after someone like that what do you do to get yourself back to a place where you're gonna obviously you don't want to continue the mission in a, a, a state of seeing red right right uh again going back to the training um you're you're they try and put you in scenarios purposefully to get you to that level where you, uh, they try and break you, basically to take you to a point where your response will be negatively impacted by your emotions. And, and then we go back and debrief what happened. Where, where did you trip to that next level? How do you bring it down so you can maintain that, you know, ultimate control and, and effectiveness despite the fact of what's being thrown at you. And so now you're in that real scenario and you just it just defaults to your your training. I can't say, you know, you're going through a methodical 
set of procedures, but it, it, you, you, you realize by years of training that your performance will be degraded if you let, if you let it affect you. And so you just stay laser focused on, on, on the mission. And, uh, and frankly, in that particular scenario, the person who may have been shot at may actually just leave the, the fight uh, because they're being targeted. So they would leave the area and the rest uh, would have to take care of it. So those that weren't shot at perhaps have a little more, a little more calm about them. So have you been in scenarios like that? You go back, you clean up, and you drop bombs on people, and then you're headed back to the base, and you know you land, and then you collect yourself, and then where is your head at after you've done that? Now, just to just to clarify, our base is the aircraft carrier, so we we're never landing on on land when we come back. We're landing in the ocean or the or the Gulf or wherever. Uh, floating hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and 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 we we joke, but it's serious. No matter how busy or crazy or challenging the mission is, the last seventeen to twenty seconds of the mission is by far the most difficult, and that's landing on the ship. Um, you know, I've I've done it thousands of times, but I've lost many great great comrades you know, behind the ship, so it's. It's very unforgiving. It's sixty feet off the ground, and it's made of made of steel, and uh, and the seas can be rough, and the winds can be crazy, and there's sandstorms. I've been on carry aircraft carriers where it's been snowing on there, and in the Sea of Japan. I mean, it's the same environments we're used to on land, but it's happening at sea, and yet the mission must continue. And so, despite uh, a, a seven-hour mission. Of, of potentially dropping bombs or, or helping your fellow Marines, um, going to an airborne tanker three separate times. When all that's said and done, those last 20 seconds, when you got to get that airplane back on that pitching deck of an aircraft carrier uh, is, is when you got to be the most focused. And then we sit down and talk about the mission uh, and, and kind of debrief what exactly happened. So... I appreciate that explanation. This is the the thing that you see in, uh, on video of the, the, the wire that pulls you down to a, a halt and you have to make that. And then sometimes you don't, I imagine, and you have to loop around and try again. No, I'm sure that's happened. It is. That's called a bolter. Uh, that's when you're attempting to land, you miss the wires, whether the hook that's hanging below your aircraft skips over the wire or you actually just miss, miss all the, the, the wires themselves and you do essentially what would be a touch and go. Whenever we land on the carrier, you always go to full power, assuming that you're gonna miss the wires and you will touch and go and, and get a chance to try it again. So the system's designed to withstand the power of the airplane landing, uh, the thousands of pounds of airplane, you know, and, and also at full power. And so it'll, it'll pull you to a stop and as you've seen in the in the movies or the shows, you know, within two seconds you're at a dead stop from 140 miles an hour. So, it is a um, it is a controlled crash. We don't land like the airliners. We don't you know kind of squeak it on. We land firmly, and there's no question. Uh, and that's why my back is always constantly a little sore. <laughs> yeah, just thinking about that 140 to zero in two seconds. That's uh, that's abrupt. That's a fair number of G's. It is. I mean, there's, there's all types, all these have stories. I had a buddy of mine who had his seatbelt, uh, which we fly with, of course, right around the shoulders. It's kind of like a racing, like you'd see in a, in a, in a racing car, you know, multi-strap all around you. And it automatically locks when you land. Uh, well, 
his uh, was put in incorrectly and it was reversed unbeknownst to the to the pilot and when he landed it did not lock and essentially it smashed his face right into the uh, heads up display in front of him with his mask on uh, you know, breaking his nose and it just the whole thing. It's 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 quite violent, but when everything works properly, it's uh, it's you know it's it's a piece of cake. It's when things don't work properly, you know, you end up paying the price for that. I'm talking with John Pico about uh, flight experiences. Getting back to that, so you've flown a mission and then you've come back and there have been some bombs dropped and presumably uh, some folks have died. And then you're back and you do the stressful landing and then you're just sitting there. What goes through your head when you think about what happened and the people, the enemies that were killed or sometimes civilian casualties? I imagine that happens as well. What is, how does your brain process the experience that you've been through? Yeah, they can't train you for that. And and uh, I, I will never forget the very first mission where I did have to release ordnance on a target. And, uh, and what we do train for um, is knowing that the pilot is the final safety check in what's about to happen. It doesn't matter what's what you're being told. It doesn't matter what you're you know, what you think you see, you have to be certain that that's the target because you have lethal force at your fingertips. And uh, and with that in mind, I mean, it's a very fluid, dynamic, dangerous situation. Most of the time, I'd say our missions are to protect our forces that are on the ground and our friendly forces from other countries from from being attacked. And that particular mission, it was my first where I did drop ordnance. We had Marines U.S. Marines uh, pinned down, and they were taking fire from this building, and they just couldn't. They, they were overwhelming force is what they were experiencing. They reported that up through the secure radio channels. That gets to ultimately to me, who's orbiting, you know, nearby, three or four miles up, and uh, and then my mission is to essentially remove that building where they're taking fire. Uh, I mean, as simple as that. And so the challenge was, while I'm talking to those Marines on the ground, while they're taking fire, they're describing to me the exact building, what it looks like. And, and let me tell you, from three, three miles up, every building down there looks pretty damn similar. And, uh, and we had to figure out the, you know, from the river, from the mountain range, from the red truck, all the way down, work our way to exactly what building it was while they're taking fire and then uh, get lined up to, to release the weapon. And make sure that it hits the target and 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 removes any you know potential chance of any civilian casualties, and uh, and we did we did hit the target right on, the building was removed, the threat was uh, eliminated, and our forces could continue on with their mission. And then you know I finally land on the carrier two hours later, and it's time to you know kind of reflect on what happened, and it was that night I remember it was I mean I'm landing at three in the morning you know it's the your days are very different than normal days. And, uh, and, and I thought to myself, you know, these are, these are men and, and women just like the guys and gals I'm flying with. They're, they have families. They're probably parents, you know. And, and I had some trouble squaring with that that night. Uh, you know, I was listening to Enya uh, in the background just to calm down. My heart was still racing. And, um, you know, I talked to my colleagues about that, how they worked through it. And at the end of the day, uh, we just had to realize that they were trying to hurt 
Americans and friendly forces. That's the bottom line. They were they were trying to hurt us, and we had to do what we we could to to try and defend our own folks. And that's basically how I got my arms around it. It's hard to imagine a more intense scenario psychologically. There are lots of things that are torturous physically, but I imagine that the the piecing together of what happened and what your culpability is or responsibility or even whether there are feelings of heroism there in terms of what you did, there's a kind of a stew of emotions about what's happened at the end of a mission like that. Yeah, it's intense. And we, as part of the training, again, we go, go keep going back to that. Um, there is not much on a mission, whether real life or training, that you don't debrief in painful detail. They call it get, getting on the island, the, the pain island. You get on that island and you talk about everything that happened, all the communications that were made. You review the tapes, every word that was said, every, all the mechanics you've used with your radars, the landing you do on the carrier. It's all evaluated and assessed uh, by someone more senior and, and, and all in with the intent of trying to improve the next mission. And, and so over time, you're just honing each other's skills. You leave your rank at the door. So it doesn't matter if you're the commanding officer or the newest pilot, um, you know, the job is to improve everybody. So if you had a safety incident in the air by some, caused by someone else, you'll, you'll bring that up. It doesn't matter who, who has a senior rank and who has a junior rank, it's, it's gotta be addressed to improve. That's the culture of Naval aviation anyway. Seems like maybe that's obviously that is part of improving, but it also seems like that might be a way to be focusing on the technical details of what happened instead of on maybe the human level of what just happened. Perhaps I I, I certainly don't think it was designed that way, but I do think it it helps. There's probably three separate times I can remember landing on the ship. Uh, of course, it was always at night all these three, three particular times, um, raining, the flight deck is slippery. I mean, it's pitch black. I, I can't describe to you how dark it can be out there when there's an overcast, no moon, raining. You, you cannot find that ship out there uh, with the exception of the rectangular lights that are pointing backwards when you're landing. And, uh, and once you land, you're, you're, you move around those lights and it's pitch black. And so you're being escorted around, taxied around the aircraft carrier um, and my legs are shaken. These three particular times, if my commanding officer was at the bottom of the ladder of my jet, when I got off that, got out of that airplane, I would have probably turned in my wings because it was just too damn crazy. But instead, he's not at the bottom of the ladder. This plane captain who helps lock down the plane is there welcoming me back. I have to go to the paraloft and turn in my sweaty gear. I have to go debrief the mission uh, with with our other team. And by the time, you know, go to the maintenance guys, tell them any problems with the airplane. And at the end of the day, 30, 45 minutes later, I'm back with my guys. And next thing you know, they're cheering, hey, what a great mission. You did great out there. And then you're fired up again. And next thing you know, hey, we got another one for you. You know, some guy's sick. You got to get right back in the airplane and you're right back in again. So that downtime from landing to when you finally see your fellow squadron mates, uh, I, Perhaps is designed to allow you to get your arms around it and get back in the fight. 
We'll be right back here. I'm going to ask you when we come back a little bit about your time training others. Uh, I believe you were instructor in that kind of a Top Gun program. So we'll get into that in just a bit. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show. I am talking with John Pico, who has been, among other things, a fighter pilot and also a trainer of other pilots. I want to ask you about that. How did you get involved with training other pilots? So my very first squadron was uh, was in Japan. So my first three years flying a gray airplane. We call it a gray airplane because all the training airplanes are painted orange and white. Uh, but once you're in a gray airplane, now you're flying the real thing. My first squadron was in uh, Japan, VFA-195, the Dam Busters. And, uh, and and that's where I've really, really learned. And we, we, had, we went to uh, the Persian Gulf twice. We flew with our, our, our uh, partners in Japan, South Korea, all, all over that region. And, uh, and I always found it to be extremely helpful and impressive working with the pilots that were back in the squadron that had been trained at Top Gun. And going back to that first comment, you know, I, I, I remembered the movie when I was 14 or 15, and, and, and these guys were the guys that went through it. And so after those three years, or as those three years were approaching, uh, you know, Top Gun's looking for younger, um, hungry, you know, qualified and um, pilots that they can that they can train to the next level. And so I threw my name in, in the hat, and was picked. And uh, so from Japan, I I basically went to Fallon, Nevada. So Top Gun. You know, when in the movie is in Miramar, California, uh, but it's years and years ago, moved to Fallon, Nevada, uh, a wonderful little town, but kind of in the middle of nowhere, which is perfect for flying, but not not super great for for nightlife. I can tell you that. But uh, it allows us to focus. So as a as a student, really a Top Gun student, I'm I'm, I'm flying and training and studying amongst some of the best fighter pilots ever. And they're the Top Gun instructors that you saw in the movie. And those are the guys, I mean, they're my colleagues, they're a couple years older than I am. And, and they're the ones that are taking us to the next level. They're teaching us that some of our techniques are inferior. And, and, and they show us that, you know, in a painful way, how they can beat us in a dogfight, you know, quite easily. And then we find out what our weaknesses are. We start to exploit their weaknesses. And as the course continues, uh, it's no longer big brother, you know, beating little brother up on a basketball court. Now it's two brothers going at it. Sometimes they would win. Sometimes I would win. And by the end, uh, you're, you're standing shoulder to shoulder with these instructors in most cases. Um, everything from aerial combat to, uh, to, to different types of weapon systems and, and bombing training and all types of stuff. And what they're also teaching is how to teach. That's the key part. It's not just demonstrating your skills, but also having to having to teach it, having how to recognize it in someone else while you're flying. I mean, I always found that amazing that 
I could be flying with a student pilot or another pilot a mile away from me and we're in a dogfight and I could essentially debrief what he did or she did well or not well just by looking back and just my experience having done that enough times. He or she may not even know what they did. And I said, hey, what happened here is you pushed too hard on this this rudder, you didn't, you know, you worked the throttles incorrectly. And they're like, wow, thinking back, and that's exactly what had happened. You just have so much more awareness of your surroundings and what others are doing that you can teach them and take them to the next level. And that's really what Top Gun does. And that was an attractive thing to you to not just fly, but to also prepare others. And I guess you get lots of flying then as an instructor as well. You do. And and I, I do have to say that it is just like the movie minus the volleyball and the blonde Kelly McGillis types. They, neither of those were there. Uh, I, can, I can attest to that. Um, so it, it, the, the training is so intense, and it doesn't start that way. I mean, it starts intense, but it ramps up to a level that I, I couldn't have imagined prior to going to Top Gun. It's to a level where it's sometimes designed where you may not make it out alive. In training, so you will, there will be simulated shots that will kill you. There will be scenarios that are you may not get out of. It's designed to take you to the point where uh, you may not survive uh, in training anyway. And and these training s- simulations in the air are so realistic. I mean, it's the same airplanes, but we have uh, simulated weapons. Uh, everything's recorded. It's essentially identical to real life, minus a weapon coming off. The aircraft, and so you come back and debrief everything that happened, all with the focus of making you better. And then ultimately, they they turn the table, and now you are the instructor, you are preparing the mission, you are managing the flight, and you are debriefing the 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 student, which is an actual Top Gun instructor, and it's ultimately to improve your your teaching techniques. You said that the obviously the you know, the, uh, there are parts of the movie that are flourishes and that are the romantic part and whatever that may not be part of a particular, uh, particular trainee's life. But beyond that, in a broader sense, what did that movie get wrong? And one of the things I wonder about having seen the, the movie, though it's been a long time, is to what extent is the Top Gun training program tolerant of people who are mavericks in some sense? Yeah, if you take out the uh, the sexy parts, you take out the volleyball, you take out uh, all that, it probably leaves about 30 minutes of the movie left. And so that 30 minutes is pretty darn accurate. And I know Top Gun 2 is coming out, and I'm fired up to see that. Um, all types of personalities are pilots. And, and I mean fighter pilots, whether there are brothers and sisters in the Air Force or Navy, any other service, but I can speak for the Navy specifically. When I went through Top Gun right around 2000, uh, it was the time where they had the first female. I know her well. And and it became very clear. And again, remember, I had a sister that was already in the Navy by this point. And she'd done amazing things. It became very clear that she could fight just as hard, if not harder, than some of the other guys that I was flying with. And, uh, And so now there are men and women that graduate Top Gun. The movie... As you recall, we're all men, uh, but that's that's a big change, and and it's a great change, and uh, and so now we uh, we see Top Gun instructors um, 
whether at the schoolhouse that remain as instructors or that go out to different squadrons uh, and train internally to make that squadron better, uh, both men and women. That's probably the biggest difference. But then in terms of just general tolerance for people kind of going rogue in some way or another, is there any tolerance for that in, in real life? You, you do see less tolerance for those that go it alone. Um, I mean, in, in Top Gun, the, the famous airplane, the F-14 Tomcat, was a front and back seat two-person crew. Many of the airplanes we fly now are single seat single seat and two seat, but I flew my whole life a single seat aircraft. So I am alone in that airplane by myself. Um, but that does not mean you're a rogue, you know, warrior out there. You, you are very much uh, a team with your wingman or multiple wingmen. Uh, I have flown in missions where there's 20, 24, 28 airplanes flying together for a mission, doing all different types to make that mission successful. You cannot tolerate a lone wolf out there doing their own thing. It's too dangerous, and uh, and and that lessons learned, you know, in blood, unfortunately, and relearned. So that that that's pretty much not a tolerated lone wolf attitude in this business. We spoke earlier in the conversation, and for those who missed any of it, every episode is wrapped up in a podcast and posted shortly after it airs to mattasher.com or to the Filter podcast feed, so feel free to go back and download if you missed part of our conversation, but we were talking about some of the dangers you faced during actual combat missions. Were there moments where you felt a particular level of danger during the Top Gun training itself, either as an instructor or as a a student? There were levels, yeah, there were levels uh, of intensity that I was taken to that I had not experienced prior. Uh, Most of those started in the preparation, the expectation for you to know uh, threat information about the threat that you may see, information about the airplanes you're potentially going to fight against. Uh, it was, it, you know, the level of the knowledge I expected you to have was much higher than I had expected. So that was an intense. And then once you take it in the airplane, just the level of capabilities these instructor pilots had um, were, it w- was just amazing at that time. Uh, and that's the level I, you know, that was the goal to achieve that level of proficiency uh, in your in your skill, um, so you could teach it, you could demonstrate it, and and there were many times, as most fighter pilots have a little bit of uh, ego or confidence about them, you'd have the young young warrior, you know, stare you down in the brief years later. Hey, Top Gun guy, you know, let's see what you got, and you know, you just kind of nod your head and like, all right, well, we're not going to talk about it now. We're going to demonstrate it in the air. And about an hour and a half later, you know, you're whooping up on this young lad or, 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 or gal and, and you come back to the debrief and, and explain, not beating your chest, but just explaining this is what you did wrong. This is how you can improve. And, and their, their, you know, their head is bowed uh, with respect and they will never they'll never do that again. I mean, that's just really got to teach these young guys and gals. Um, there's so much more to this profession than what they think at that young stage. What is the margin of error like when you're flying these planes at 
at extraordinary speeds and probably with very small tolerances at times in terms of the, you know, the space you have, the windows uh, in, in which you're flying. Um, do things ever get out of, uh, you know, out of control, losing control of, of the plane in ways that are dangerous during the training? There are, I mean, you won't meet someone that's done this for for a long time that hasn't lost a number of great friends uh, or, or squadron mates from other squadrons. Uh, thankfully, I've never lost a roommate, so I've always come home and had the same roommates in my in my stateroom. But uh, I've lost way too many guys and gals to to really even count. And most of those are in the air, uh, and and normally not due to any pilot error. Normally, it's due to either a maintenance issue or just pushing the mission too hard. But there are, I mean, it's just, I tell my wife all the time, she's like, you live your life like tomorrow's the last day or whatever the song is, you know, live your life like today's your last day, whatever it is. And um, how do you, why do you do that? I'm like, well, because I've, I've been so close to, to death there. And, and I don't mean that in the, uh, in, in the crazy sense. I mean, literally a wingman, has has inadvertently tried to kill me, not knowing I was there in his air airspace, and we come back, stare at each other, and and you know sort of hug each other, grab a drink, talk about it, and move on. And and that's happened numerous times. And I'm just happy to be here, to be honest with you. Well, thank you for coming here to talk with me, uh, John. So you're a financial advisor. Is there anything you want to let people know about how they can get a hold of you if they want to? Sure. Yeah. I, originally, I was an accounting major, so uh, I buried that deep as I went flying. And then uh, it has always been a second passion of mine. So I chose to, uh, when I retired last year, to follow that passion. So I work now for Edward Jones in what would be the southernmost Edward Jones branch here in Key West. So john.pico at edwardjones.com is a good way to, to link up if you'd like to. But this has just been an absolute pleasure.